0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Back in June, I had a great discussion with the Atlantic's Jennifer Sr., who had just profiled Steve Bannon. She hung out with him. He texted her a gazillion times. He made political predictions that were totally wrong, and he got mad when she called his show a podcast. This is one of the funniest ways to talk about one of the most infuriating and loathsome people in America. Just listen to the show, and you'll see why we included this episode on our best of 2022 list. In case you have not seen it, Jennifer Sr.'s piece on Steve Bannon, American Rasputin. Online, you you can read it, is an absolute must-read. Steve Bannon's still scheming. He is still a threat to democracy. So first of all, I ought to uh, introduce uh, our guest, uh, Jennifer Sr., who is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Feature Writing. So welcome to the podcast, and. Wow. Congratulations on that.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, I heard about it while I was writing about Steve Bannon. And if you want to know how to cancel your elation over winning a Pulitzer, try being in the midst of a long profile of Steve Bannon. (laughs) they, They more or less balance each other out, right? Like the stress versus the glee. Anyway, thank you.
0: Well, I mean, were you also thinking like, okay, so a little bit of pressure here, I mean, no,
1: oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the pressure was just like I was writing about Steve Bannon. It sort of existed whether, you know, I could have been a schlub or I could have gotten the prize. It sort of didn't matter. He is independently a stressful, regardless. Well,
0: just just stressful and dystopian.
1: Oh, yeah. If you want to talk about him being a bummer, we can go there too. (laughs) But, you know, if you want to talk about the existential dread and all that, but yes, go on. Sorry.
0: Kind of having like a front row seat to the bonfire of American democracy.
1: Well, and that he's so cavalier about it. You know, he's sitting there treating it like it's a game almost. You know, there's a certain amount of sport when he takes up these matters. But the content is hair-raising, right? So, yes, absolutely. He is
0: living his best life, and I want to read something. But, I mean, here's a guy who not that long ago was arrested and indicted for fraud and you would think that okay, you know that's that's the comeuppance for Steve Bannon. He gets pardoned by Donald Trump, and of course, you know he's facing criminal charges from refusing to testify before the House. But this guy is feeling it right now, isn't he? I mean, this is this is what Steve Bannon was born for, right?
1: Well, yes, because he's fundamentally a media guy, and he was never meant to be anyone's employee. He didn't mm-hmm. stick with most of the organizations he worked for for very long. You know, he would always kind of go off on his own. And he lasted, what, seven months in the Trump administration? He's happiest, I think, alone howling into a microphone. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it is his moment, for reasons that are not entirely of his own doing. In fact, I don't think they have so much to do with him. I mean, he's able to howl and rant about inflation, and that's a product of many birds coming home to roost. He's howling about prices at the pump, and... That's Ukraine plus, right? That's other things.
0: Drag queen Uh, story hour.
1: (laughs) Right, drag queen story hour. What does one even say about that? I mean, I thought He he
0: says quite a bit about... Okay, so you mentioned something and it triggered a a memory when you said that he never wanted to work for anybody else because I remember the moment during the 26 campaign when Donald Trump named him like the co-campaign manager.
1: Yeah.
0: And weirdly enough, I was on a panel with Hugh Hewitt on MSNBC or something. And Hugh was, of course, saying what a brilliant it was. And I, I remember saying, you know, I just don't think this is going to end well. I got the election wrong, right? <laughs> you know, I <laughs> you mean, did? so I guess it, it ended. And given where Steve Bannon is right now, Steve Bannon living the dream.
1: You can argue he's living his best life. You can also argue that he isn't that he's kind of a sad figure. And I do leave that open as a possibility at the end of the piece. And I would point out that I don't know, are you living your best life when the sort of Damocles is sort of hanging over your neck wherever you go? There are yeah. a lot of potential lawsuits that could happen here, right? There are many states that could get very testy about we build the wall and come after him for wire fraud and all sorts of other things. And it is conceivable that like his vision about his townhouse next door becoming the kind of center for the worldwide populist movement won't ever really happen in the way that it never really happened in Europe. And maybe his timing was just bad in Europe. And maybe the Europeans just didn't quite like him or get him and vice versa. But I could argue that one flat around. round. I'm just no, okay, going to say.
0: Okay. We'll come back to that because I, I sort of have this image of Steve Bannon on the mountaintop thinking, you know, what if I can't burn it all down, I will just go in this blaze of glory. So he knows he's on the edge, but but actually, you know, the self-immolation, utter destruction, martyrdom, I, the guy's strange. So my producer is named Katie Cooper, and, and she sent me a note about this article, about our, our interview today. So I, I, wanted, I wanted to read this to you. She says... You can see the evidence of how she won that Pulitzer in her lead, and she sent it to me. I sometimes look at the long ribbons of texts I've gotten from Steve Bannon and wonder whether they couldn't tell the whole story on their own. There are certainly enough of them. He says he has five phones, two encrypted, and he's forever pecking away, issuing pronuncement pronunciamentos. It was close yes, enough. Yes, pronunciamentos. With incontinent abandon after midnight during commercial breaks for his show, War Room, sometimes while the broadcast is still live, you can discern much of Bannon's mad character and contradictions in these exchanges, the chaos and the focus, the pugnacity and the enthusiasm, the transparency and the industrial grade bullshit. Also, the mania. Logomania, Arithmomania, Monomania. He likely cop to all of these, especially that last one. He's the first to say that one of the features of his show is wash, rinse, repeat. Garden variety Hypermania, with a generous assist from Espressos. And last of all, perhaps above all else, straight-up Megalomania, which even those who profess affection for the man can see, though it appears to be a problem only for those who believe, as I do, that he's attempting to insert a lit bomb into the mouth of American democracy. (laughs) That's a hell of a paragraph. Thank you. So you spent time with him. He decided that he was going to work with you and that he was going to text his thoughts to you, which is always an interesting choice.
1: Yeah, well, and I'm not the only one. He's an avid texter. I think he texts his thoughts to a lot of reporters, and I think I might have been just the first to go, God, you know, this would make a really interesting lead. In fact, they should kind of be woven throughout the piece because his texts are peculiar. There's a lot of crowing in them. He can be very pugnacious and very conceited in those texts. His sense of humor, which he does have, is almost never in evidence in those texts unless you're ribbing him and then he writes an LOL. He knows when you're kind of japing or whatever. But I think I wrote at one point that they felt almost like a Turing test. I wasn't quite sure I was talking to a human sometimes. There was something slightly bot-ish about him. <laughs> I was like, going to you know, ask that? you
0: that. I mean, th- yeah. th- that's the test that determine whether, you know, computer artificial intelligence can effectively imitate human behavior. Oh, so- right, an owning
1: the libs bot. You know, if, if there was an owning the libs bot, like you can imagine it generating a lot of the text that I got, like maybe 80% of them. But, you know, then he would text things to me like about missing his father, you know, and That's not an owning the lip spot text. That's a real text. That's real.
0: But at the same time, so you get a little like glimpse of human being, but then he's calling Ann Applebaum a fucking clown, spelled with a K?
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, there's something really distasteful about that. That was kind of waking up and getting a fondue fork poked in your eye. I was like, what is this? You know, and I tried to just sort of gently, like, respond by saying, I mean, I didn't take the bait. I just said, interesting, you know, you've always really liked her and expressed nothing but admiration and respect for her intellect. What's going on here? And it just turned out he linked something she said about Hunter's laptop that he disapproved of because she just didn't think that Hunter's laptop was all that interesting. I remember she just found it neither here nor there. And that pissed him off. But yeah, he could be quite abrasive in those texts.
0: So one of the surest ways to get under his skin, though, it's always interesting what, what his points of sensitivity are. Apparently, if you call his show The War Room, if you call it a podcast, he gets very upset.
1: No, he doesn't. And it's, I mean, he's used to it and he knows that's how it's referred to. I mean, I I defy you to kind of Google it and see it referred to as anything other than that. But he takes it very seriously as a TV show and so seriously that it's true that parts of it are mystifying and incomprehensible as a podcast. (laughs) He never IDs the voices, right? Somebody like Navarro will hold up a pie chart and no one can see it. But I mean, it's on like channel 240 of Pluto TV, which I write as sort of its own weird metaphor?
0: You called it it's sad metaphor.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, because it's like in the Kuiper belt of the of the universe. Where is it? Right? I mean it's like it's so far away. It's not readily accessible in many markets. You can watch it on Rumble if you want to go online.
0: No. I mean Pluto TV is not like you putting it not high end. It's like this you sort of an amusing shoestring quality. I mean it's it's well, like, it's like, it's like Wayne's world for insurrectionists. I mean, what? Well,
1: yes, exactly. And I think I said, it's like Father Coglin stumbled into Wayne and Garth's space. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> it has a very low budget kind of feel about it, which I think he actually takes some pride in. It's very homespun. I once said to him, you know, Steve, I can hear your, two of your cell phones buzzing throughout the show. Like when it's between my ears and I'm, which is mainly how I took it in, I would like listen to it because Spotify doesn't carry it, but I guess Apple does. And I said to him, "It just bzzt, bzzt, bzzt. I mean, it sounds like mosquitoes. Like there are just these mass casualties of mosquitoes as you're listening. And I, I said to him, like, it's a little weird. I didn't do a thing about it. Just leaves them right in front of the mic. I mean, he's too engaged with them. He wants the feedback. He wants to know what's blowing up. He wants to know which guests listeners are responding to, you know, what things people are saying that are sticky. So he's kind of tied to the low budget, low rent quality. People are sitting in like these kind of white corners with kind of shades, and I mean, nobody seems to have had any TV training. I mean, there's a lot of sad brown backdrops, and and yet everyone
0: goes there, right? I mean, it's become like the go to place for the deplorables. Every candidate, every elected official, you know, they come in and they and they kiss the ring. And I guess I was surprised to read that they do pre interviews too.
1: Yeah, and Bannon does them. I mean, here's what I will also say: (laughs) for what he does he's pretty good at it, if you know what I mean. I mean, if Mm -hmm. you want to make your meat and potatoes like trafficking and conspiracies and repeating the big lie and occasionally getting super wonky in a very conservative framework with economic data and polling data, you know, the facts are sketchy. He will often get poll data wrong. If you want to spread a lot of COVID misinformation, I mean, he's your guy. And it's a variety show. There are A, B, C, and D blocks, He mixes up the pacing. He gets fringe candidates who are running for local uh, offices and, you know, activist moms and throws in his own Peter Navarro's and Steve Cortez's people who will analyze the data the way he likes to, you know, there's kind of a bro quality going on with him and his correspondents. They talk for a while, then he'll throw in something else. I mean, it's not the Dick Van Dyke show, but but there's more variety in this hour than there are in a lot of other podcasts, I would say. (laughs) And he does four hours, right? So, you know, he does four hours. It's exhausting just watching.
0: So you mentioned that the show became, over time, a guided tour through Bannon's gallery of obsessions, the stolen election, Biden family syndicate, Hunter, of course, the invaders at the southern border, the evil Chinese Communist Party, the stolen election, the COVID mandates, the folly of modern monetary theory, the stolen election. That strikes me as kind of a rundown of what has become the id of the right. And so I guess this is the question, I'm I'm sure you've got to ask this, like, why pay attention to Steve Bannon? Don't we just give too much oxygen to the fringes by paying attention to him?
1: Yeah, I have been asked that. But my feeling about this is that, first of all, exposure is not an endorsement, right? Mm -hmm. It's journalism. But my other thought is, actually, I think it's important to know what the actual content is, what they're saying. I mean, I think we have to know what their talking points are. I don't think we do ourselves any favors by not knowing kind of what shit they're flinging against a wall. I think we have to know. It's important to get a beat on what the misinformation is and disinformation is, and also to grasp how very much of it there is. You know, what Obama said about flooding the public square with raw sewage. I mean, I just think that not knowing these things never helps because he's doing it whether we're paying attention or not.
0: I think one of the big mistakes that people made was not paying attention before 2016 and then suddenly wake up and realize where I mean, re- exactly. really. Exactly. I mean, I mean and, and if it weren't for the fact that Donald Trump is waiting out on the wings and might be the next president of the United States and the fact that Steve Bannon is actually pretty influential, maybe not in gross numbers, but in terms of where the right wing is going, We don't have the luxury of of ignoring this. I mean, you mentioned, for example, you know, Bannon's the country's biggest exponent of this precinct strategy, which, you know, encourages people to sign up for, you know, the grunt work of elections and, you know, the Democratic Party's nightmare scenario. And there's a lot of evidence that it may sound crazy. It may sound off the wall. It may sound like, you know, Iago ranting, but that's what's happening. In the country, thank you right? for saying that. Because
1: I think that like Democrats would be smart to pay very close attention to the precinct strategy, and try and match it. Do it on their own. Right there are things we can learn from what they're do- they're trying to take over every level of state government, so that. Trumpists and MAGA people are in control of the infrastructure so that whatever barely held together in 2020 will completely come unstrung or undone in 2024. So I think it's important to know that. It's also important to understand the way guys like him are really mainstreaming completely zany ideas. So, for instance, I mean, he was banging his spoon on his high chair for forever about impeaching Joe Biden for the quote-unquote Southern invasion, right? The idea that there are unprecedented numbers of um, undocumented immigrants coming over the border. And he considers this an impeachable offense. It's failure to protect and defend, right? And to me, this just seemed nuts. And if you're dissatisfied with this, you address it through policy, you vote Biden out, you do whatever normal democratic things are. He just wants to impeach him for it. And I thought, well, this is bananas and it's never going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. 70% of all Republicans now yep. believe that in 2022, if Republicans take over the House, they should impeach Joe Biden. I mean, that's that's nuts. And I don't think that Democrats should be But it's going caught, to happen. But no. And Democrats should not be caught on their back foot. They can't be caught on their back foot about this. I mean, does anyone have a strategy for what happens if this happens? I don't know when you came of age politically, but I was like a cub reporter when Newt Gingrich took the reins of, you know, uh, in 1994 and 95. And everybody thought that he was just right. Okay. So everybody just thought he would, he almost had a roosterly hairdo. He had that big high hair. He would puff out, you know, and sort of strut around and tell everyone that he was going to take over the house and no one took him seriously. And you know what? He took over the house and he sort of understood what the grand realities looked like. Steve Bannon could be jumping on bandwagons rather than actually kind of sitting in the saddle leading, you know, kind of driving the horse. But I I do think we should be paying attention to what he says.
0: I do. Well, I totally agree. And and also because in many ways, he is a leading indicator of where the party is going to go. And we've seen this over and over again, where you have some bizarre thing, sort of a, you know, a tiny cloud on the horizon that everybody else is ignoring. And then before you know it, it is on you. Stuff that was, you know, considered quite extreme now has become mainstream. So when he makes comments about vladimir putin and ukraine you may think okay well obviously he's a complete outlier there are only two to three percent of republicans you know agree with his take well just wait a while just wait watch yeah. how it grows and it spreads when he talks about the impeachment this is going to happen he obviously was sharing with you his glee at what he thinks is going to happen during the midterm the, the left and the media they're all about democracy he ran it to me one day you wrote then he broke into a smile on November 8th, the war room and the war room posse on all the little people at the school boards and things, we're going to give you democracy shoved up your ass, okay? We're going to give you a democracy suppository. Ever classing.
1: Yeah. And of oh. course I laughed at the time. I know, I know. Um, oh. One of the reasons that I think I could afford to laugh was that he actually didn't say it particularly scarily. Um, I mean, he sort of was grinning and making sport of the whole thing, but it's terrifying because it there's some truth to it. I mean, if everybody, if people do infiltrate the sort of state infrastructure, right. And they become the people who eventually oversee elections and become secretaries of state, that's it. Right. I mean, then they can nullify and invalidate legitimate election results if they don't like them. And it's very upsetting.
0: I'm sure you've had the same reaction. I mean, I was concerned to alarmed after the election before January 6th about what was going on. But on a daily basis, we're finding out that we weren't necessarily alarmed enough. These people were very, very serious. And the question is, once they figure out you know, which doors are unlocked, which buttons they can push, which personnel they need in, in certain places, they're serious about all this. And, and Steve Bannon, he, he doesn't pretend. I mean, what you have is that raw id telling you who we're going to punish, how we're going to use the power, how far we're willing to go. And I think it's incredibly naive not to think that he is going to be incredibly influential and that, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell may not think the same way, but those are the voices they're going to be hearing at their back come next January.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, when they're trying to contain their right flank and cater to them, I mean, when they're talking to Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, yep. absolutely. Those were the regulars, you know, at Steve Bannon's Star Wars bar, you know. And if I can also just point one thing out, it is true that, for instance, somebody like Ben Shapiro or somebody like Don Bongino or somebody like Joe Rogan, all of these people have significantly larger audiences. The question is how many people you need, because I think Bannon is sort of an asymmetrical threat all you need to do is inflame. You don't need hundreds of thousands of people to wreak havoc at the Capitol, right? You you just need the right number to overpower the cops, to kill cops, to wreak utter havoc, to come within a hair's breadth of harming actual members of Congress. I mean, Steve Bannon's audience is more than large enough to inflame those folks. And that's really all you need.
0: This is a key point. And and I think this is also something that Steve Bannon understands. You know, he's described himself in the past as a Leninist. I think he, that this is interesting because of course, you know, as a right-winger, he though has internalized many of those revolutionary attitudes and and the kind of thing that you need a, you know, small vanguard and what you can accomplish with that. Did you talk to him about that at all?
1: You know, I should have, particularly because I think he tried to make common cause at one point with the editor-in-chief of the American Prospector. So there are moments when I would actually stop him and say, I agree with you. I also think that, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are getting away with murder and that they ought to be nationalized. Sure. I mean, it makes a certain sense. I mean, my grandpas were both union guys, right? Yeah. My grandparents, they saved money and became part of the prosperous middle class in the United States. They were foundational to America, you know, and Steve Bannon on some level fancies himself the champion of guys like my grandpa and guys like his yeah. own father. If he confined his talk to all the Leninist stuff, it'd be great. But You can do that without spreading the big lie. You can do that without fomenting really horrendous culture wars and telling people not to get vaccinated. You can do it. I mean, I don't really know where to go with this. I mean, you can follow Bernie Sanders if that's what you like.
0: It's interesting, the different opinions you got. Stephanie Grisham, White House alumni, told you that uh, she thinks of him as a con man. Anthony Scaramucci said he's a very sick megalomaniac compared to Hitler. Another White House (laughs) colleague called him a cancer in the administration with too many conversations ended with, we burn it all down, just burn it down. But you write, this is interesting, I thought, that there's a dirty secret about Bannon that many liberals who have met him are disarmed by how charming he is. White House reporters actually liked him because he was a huge leaker and can easily code switch into the patter of the coastal elite, probably because he's a card carrying member, whether he likes it or not. So, I mean, here's a guy who's known for having having an extraordinarily high level of bullshit and yet as dramatically not believing any of it. So that's what I want to get your take. At the end of the day, does he believe the bullshit? Is it a role that he's playing? And I guess that's the same question we ask about Trump, you know, lie, delusional. Um, Is he really Iago or is Iago a character that he's assumed? What
1: do you think? Okay. I mean, I wouldn't want to lay too much money on this, but my... We are seeing this in the January 6th hearings right now, Mm -hmm. right? Smart people didn't believe this. No one believed this. No one with their wits about them believed anything. And Sam Nunberg, on the record, said to me that Steve doesn't believe this. What he needed was a pardon. So to curry favor with Trump, he embraced this. Now, is Sam right? I mean, Sam has better visibility into Steve Bannon's head probably than I do. He worked with him side by side for quite some time. Sam was one of the first employees, if not the first employee on the Trump campaign. So I take what Sam says seriously. I think anybody who keeps two sets of books after a while has to figure out some way to merge them. And it, because the cognitive dissonance is just too great. There's a gulf running between what you say and what you privately believe. So eventually you start to internalize your own patter, right? And I could watch Bannon at times. I'll tell you two stories because I, I would sometimes see him take up a position where he, he was doing it almost for sport, but by the end he had wound himself up so completely, it was almost, he started to believe the things he said. There was a moment when we were talking about Ketanji Brown Jackson and he was really stuck on one particular case. It was the Hawkins case. Mm-hmm. She gave him, I think, only three months of jail. And yeah. I think two years were you know, recommended. And That wasn't even the sentencing guideline. It was a child you know, porn was, case? It was a child porn case. And mm-hmm. it was the only one where she really radically departed from what was recommended. And he was fixated on it. And I said to him, yes, but did you read the Washington Post piece about this kid? Because if you read it, And he was like, no, I bet I did. And he's a recidivist. And I said, he's not a recidivist. If you read that piece, what was very clear to me is that it was a story about being a young black gay man in a community where it was hard to be young, black, and gay. And he came of age, obviously, online, both inured to porn and kind of overstimulated by porn and also was probably, you know, closeted. And to me, there were just so many complicated pathways that I think she was using her individual discretion and saw something cultural and looked at this adolescent and saw something else and made a different decision. And we don't know the full story here. And at first he was just dismissing it. I was then trying to steer him back to talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and why on earth he kept having her on his show when she was a demonstrable nutball and anti-Semite. And he said, you're just trying to change the subject because you know, you're losing the argument about Katanji Brown-Jackson. And I said, I'm not losing this argument. We just don't agree. And he paused and he said, okay, wait, Hmm. let me just get this straight. You're saying that you think this was about masculinity in the black community and this was about a kid who was uncomfortable and in the closet. He repeated back to me Mm -hmm. with utmost compassion what I had said to him. And I stared at him and said, Mm -hmm. so you can do that? Mm -hmm. Why don't you ever do that if you can do that? He can do that.
0: But he can't weaponize that.
1: Exactly. Brilliant. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't make for good radio or podcast or low rent, low budget cable access level TV. That's right. It's not a wedge. And his genius is in polarizing people. Can I tell you another quick story? Sure. Yeah, please. So this killed me. This killed me. Okay. So he was lecturing me about how, you know, who really hates illegal immigrants, legal immigrants, Jennifer, they really hate. And I cut him off saying, you know what, Steve, I actually know this and I don't need you telling me this because I learned it as a really, really young woman when I saw a John Sayles film called Lone Star. And John Sayles is super lefty and you know a pioneer in indie film and multiracial casting. And he, I learned it from John Sayles. I don't need you telling me that. And I described the scene in Lone Star. And then he cut me off and said, God, don't you love John Sayles? I love John Sayles. I mean, that film about that coal mining, I mean, that was so good. Mm-hmm. And he started going on about a John Sayles film. He speaks our language.
0: This is why I put him in a completely different category than the Sean Hannitys or the Don yep. Bonjinos because okay. he knows this stuff. He's at a yep. different level. He his intellect can go in different directions, but he's chosen this.
1: 100%. It's not like
0: Sean Hannity who's dumb as a box of rocks. This is a guy who has taken this intellect and in, in that I don't want to go off on a digression, but that's why I put him in the category of Tucker Carlson. These are really intelligent, well-read individuals who have decided that this is the role they want to play.
1: Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that about Sean Hannity, so I'm totally <laughs> intrigued by that. I mean, it's it's Gans, but like I don't w- watch his show. I, I just see clips. Um, Tucker, I've You're watched. you that Sean right.
0: Hannity is dumb?
1: Yeah, I just assume that anybody who achieves a certain level of something can't be entirely mm-hmm. dumb. But Trump obviously wasn't particularly bright. Forget it. That's stupid. Scrap that. That was dumb. Sure, Sean Hannity is dumb. Steve Bannon is not dumb. He's no. most emphatically not dumb, and he's perfectly clubbable. I mean, the the thing that I found also that needs to be said is that he's great company. I mean, he was perfectly um, respectful to me. He was perfectly charming to me, and this is why uh, I think he's successful. He's charismatic, right? I mean, this this accounts partially for his success and the reason that he's popular with reporters. I mean, I think it's really interesting. He has stopped texting me. So he clearly, he felt on some level hurt by what I wrote. I think otherwise he would have kept texting me. There are plenty of reporters that he's in constant touch with, you know, and I'm not among them. So hmm. something, uh, yeah. He didn't I, like it. I think in the end, no, he claimed on the first day that he did and that it was badass. And I think he texted me on the second day too. And then it just stopped. It just stopped. I think he
0: reconsidered. Well, his intelligence and the charm and the other things are also why he is consequential and why he is dangerous. Yep. And he he engages in talk, which I also think that people should pay attention to and not brush off, you know, about the destruction of institutions. You know, it's one thing to say the media to be destroyed. There's an undertone of uh, just, you know, burning everything down, the possibility Toys, the possibility of civil war taking over various institutions. I mean, and, and again, that's the kind of of dangerous stuff that might be off most people's radar screen. But he, he's sowing the seeds of something. I mean, is that, just talk talk to me about that because you know when you talk about taking a lit grenade and putting it in the mouth of American democracy, where does this go? What does it morph into? What does it take us?
1: If I had a dime for every time I asked him that question. I would be rotting on a beach somewhere with an umbrella drink in my hand. I mean, I, I honestly would. I'd hang up my pens. I mean, I asked him over and over again, how do you envision this ending? Mm-hmm. And he, he doesn't have much of a vision beyond being in the crane with the wrecking ball. Mm-hmm. You know, he, there is, and this is what's alarming about a certain kind of fascism, you know, that it's kind of content free. Right, There is no message. There is no content here. It's just about power. But like, if you ask him, he, he will say things like, some of us are meant to clear the land and others are meant to settle it. I cut a lot of things out of this piece, including my story about John Sayles, including that quote. I mean, he sees himself as the person who clears the land, but that's a delicate euphemism. That's quaint and suggests that, I mean, this is destroying things. Yeah, right? the point I
0: mean, is the fire Right. You know, you ma- you mentioned me the goal is power. Well, there's a kind of fascism where it's just the fire and the flames and tearing everything down, and that right. seems to be what excites Steve Mannon. Not building well, anything, certainly not running anything.
1: Right. And there's a certain nihilism I think under that. He right. I think would say there's a certain nihilism that he's taking advantage of in his listeners. I think he just has this kind of there's almost a spiritual dimension to it where he just thinks History moves in 80- or 100-year cycles, and this is the cycle of destruction. And soon there will be a rebirth, and new things will grow in its place. But he can't give you, for the life of him, the contours of what kind of shape they'll be. Will there be anything like, I mean, in the meantime, let's be like, let's just speak very bluntly. We need like people to pick up our garbage and pave our roads. You know, we still need an extant government. We need structures to, we need a functioning department of energy, like and, and commerce just to do all the things that we don't even know exist. I mean, there are all kinds of things that like he's cavalierly proposing that we just tear it all down, but our lives are made possible by infrastructure that we don't really even know is
0: there. You can't see past the horizon of destruction, what he's got in mind. It's like, we tear everything down and then, well, I'll leave that to somebody else. Well, that's not not reassuring. So in terms of the tearing down, one of the things that really has always been, I mean, I think a major theme of of Steve Bannon's career, going back to the Breitbart days, when he very openly said that he thought that Breitbart was an alt-right platform, and and you talk about the threads of anti-Semitism that run through the War Room. You know, they have chat rooms filled with anti-Semitism, and you asked him about that. Bannon describes it, uh, the commentary as a little spicy. So, yeah. so talk about this because you found that that there's something about his world where anti-Semitism is the most abundant form of ugliness among his stands. What is that about?
1: I was surprised until I wasn't because I was expecting to see much more anti-Muslim sentiment or much more anti-immigrant sentiment, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like a close call. At least the times that I watched him on rumble, the anti-Semitism drowned it all out all from different handles And I think it's actually straightforward, and it's this. When Steve broadcasts, he's got sitting above his, is it his right shoulder? Or I guess it's his left shoulder, but on the viewer's right. What you see is this sign. It's his own quote that he has, like sitting on the mantle saying, there are no conspiracies, but there are no coincidences, which is itself an ingenious form of doublespeak, right? I mean, it's saying there are no conspiracies, but there actually are. (laughs) <laughs> right you know mm-hmm. that, that like it, right. it gives you the ability to like say this isn't a lie please believe this lie you know and he really does traffic in loads of conspiracy theories they aren't just about the election they're about all kinds of things like including mm, gosh was that really omicron in uh china during the olympics or was it an outbreak of something like Hemorrhagic fever and Ebola. I don't know. Just saying, could be. We don't know. Just, just you know? asking questions. Just asking questions. You know, right? Uh, we stipulate. You decide. You know. So there's a lot of that. And if conspiracies are sort of what you peddle, if they're your bread and butter, anti-Semitism is really the biggest conspiracy of them all because it's the mother of all conspiracies. It says that Jews are behind everything.
0: I mean, you point out, I mean, he he tells you that, you know, he has lots of Jewish friends. He loves his Jewish doctors in Los Angeles, I guess. But (laughs) you're right. There's no question that Bannon and his guests are always invoking George Soros. They're always talking about the Rothschild, uh, a frequent guest, Marjorie Taylor Greene, known for her Jewish space laser references.
1: Uh A Rothschild controls those. (laughs)
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, one of his regular guests is Jack Posobiak, you know, of the three sets of parentheses meme, one of the Pizzagate guys. And yep. and so it's not a coincidence that all of these folks have gravitated to him.
1: No, he's I another mean,
0: one of the warning flags that people ought not to sleep on.
1: Right. And if he wants to claim that he has never said an anti-Semitic word, you know, or, you know, and that no Jew can actually find any anti-Semitic moment. Number one, he's using code words, right? Soros, Soros, Soros. Mm-hmm. He said, when he was dissing Macron, he said the former Rothschild's banker, and then caught himself and had to say on the air, that's not code. I mean, he, I mean, he had already had a you know conversation <laughs> about this. I mean, so uh, he knows, he is aware that, of course, it's a code. And he's, he's anti-Syman adjacent with Posobiec, who, by the way, on Bannon's show, actually was on some tear about Ron Klain, and kept saying Ron Klein, And there's no one in Washington who has any confusion about how you say Ron Klein. It looks like rain and Spain and plain yeah. and Maine and vain. And it rhymes with all of those things. And then Pesovic stopped himself one day while I was listening and called him Ronald Klein. Just wanted everybody to know what kind of fellow he was. Huh. Just in case you're curious how that name got morphed over time. So what was
0: Steve Bannon doing on January 6th? The uh, the January 6th committee played one of the more extraordinary sound bites from Steve Bannon's uh, war room the night before when he basically said, uh, you know, it's it's going to be extraordinary. I mean it was it was as if he knew what was going to happen. So yeah. what, how did he, whatever happened on January 6th, uh, Steve Bannon is part of that story, isn't he?
1: So here's what I can't say. I mean, the whole clip from the night before it's going to be extraordinary yeah he that's a lot of war room macho talk you know and he could to my mind having listened to many 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 hours of war room that sounded sort of consistent with the kind of you know, extra habanero talk that he has all the time when he's talking on the show, like, oh, it's going to be epic. It's going to be, you know, we're going to field strip these clowns. We're going to, you know, like, to me, I heard that as like, this is going to be a legislative insurrection, the the likes of Mm -hmm. which you've never seen. I did not necessarily think that he knew, although I felt like he had been stirring up his audience and flaming them for weeks Telling them, you know, to protest, to you know, man the phones, to write. He was certainly selling the big lie awfully hard and giving lots of coverage to the rally on the mall, the, all the things that were happening the night before. What we know from the day of is that he was working the phones. He won't say who he was calling. He at first wouldn't even admit that much. Um, but his daughter had spoken to me about what had gone on that day. She was on the mall. She was listening to. Trump speak. And then she got a call from Mark Fincham, who's running for Secretary of State in Arizona, who was closer to the Capitol than she was. And he said, don't come near here. Mm. It's chaos. Walk away. So she went back to the Breitbart embassy. He broadcasts nearby. And she went back and she told me that she didn't really see much of her dad. She just briefly went upstairs, which I believe is only accessible through the outside of the house. Saw him Told him she was safe and then went downstairs into the war room studio and watched on their giant TV. And he was upstairs working the phones and she didn't really see him until, you know, it was time for his next broadcast at five o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first asked him about this, he said, Well, I was just watching it the entire time in the war room downstairs. And I said, But you weren't, because your daughter told me you weren't down there. You know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then. You know, the second you kind of catch him in a contradiction, he just glides away backwards on his ice skates and changes the the story slightly. Oh, well, you know, I eventually got down there. You know, I'm sure he did. I mean, he had to broadcast at some point.
0: It seems that one of the things that he does a great deal is to uh, threaten retaliation against people who he feels have betrayed the cause. Uh, he obviously despises Mike Pence, you know, bitterly blames Pence for the day, he calls him a gutless coward just, I think it was yesterday, he uh, was talking about, you know, we're coming for you, Bill Barr. Yep. In your story, you talk about how he's going to defeat Lisa Murkowski because she voted for KBJ uh, yep. to confirm her for the Supreme Court. So this is, again, you know, he's feeling powerful um, in a vindictive, vengeful way, which you know, obviously, you know, places him at the heart of Trump world. One thought: When I was watching one of the brief clips, I can't stand watching it long form because I can take so much that as I was watching him recently, his cockiness, it did occur to me that he thinks that Trump is coming back into the White House and that all the rules will change, that that will be the culmination, that here's a man who looked like he was faced with complete destruction when he was indicted. He was pardoned. He understands the power of the president, the power of the president to rewrite the rule of law. And he thinks this is going to happen. And it's one of the I don't know. It just seems like the wind at his back. Do you, do you get that sense at all, or do yes. you think that he does? You know,
1: okay. I, I think he's highly energized by this moment. I, yeah. I do agree. You know, it's super upsetting to behold. By the way, he had no measurable effect. Lisa Murkowski did not listen to None. him. You know, yeah. I mean, there are people who are lashing themselves to the mast and deciding they are going to resist the temptation to capitulate to you know voices like this. You know, I, I, if I had to guess, she's not listening to his show. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you that I think he is enjoying himself. But, you know, it's also agitating to him. He can taste it, right? And there's something agitating about being almost there for him. And it, I, I do think there are questions just about what his future will look like. I mean, he's 68, but I mean, I don't know how many pivots he has left in him. And he's got an impressive list of people who don't like him and who wouldn't want to work with him. I think he's best positioned where he is you know, and he doesn't care. He doesn't he care doesn't about care. those
0: people. He doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, he's he's got that revolutionary spirit, which, again, one of the great ironies of our time is the conservative Republican Party now being taken over by a guy who is a revolutionary, and and he sees the revolution at hand. And I think it's that revolutionary mentality that I don't think the Democrats understand, because I think they still think that politics has some vague resemblance to the way it is, and I don't know whether you had a sense of that you spend time with him and realize that this is a completely different moral, cultural universe in many ways.
1: Well, yeah, certainly the the Democrats in many instances are playing chess, whereas he's playing checkers. And checkers is like, you know, the cruder thing sort of tends to prevail and tends to win. I do have that sense.
0: See, I would have pushed your analogy. They think they're playing chess and he's bringing a knife to the chess match. I mean, he's playing a different <laughs> game. He, you know, they're, they're doing the king to rooks four type thing, you know, rook to you know, kings four type thing. And he basically just has this big, you know, cudgel and he's just smashing the board and they, whoa, hey. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> uh, there's that scene in Indiana Jones where, um, you know, those guys are sort of moving really, right. amazing knife play and Harrison Ford just like gives him a cont- look and shoots him with his (laughs) gun (laughs) i mean if that's what you're thinking (laughs) yeah i I can coast with that metaphor i totally get it although um you know harrison ford looks much cooler in that i mean yeah and (laughs) you sort of wish the democrats would be the ones who look cool yeah i mean of course i'm totally nervous about all of this and i think it's been true for a while where but look democrats still believe in government Right, so they're still trying to yeah. get the government to do stuff, and so paradoxically, a number of them are still the incrementalists, like you said. You know, the the, the number of conservatives who are you know embracing conservative principles and do and opting for incremental change are becoming vanishingly rare. Um, and yeah. it's now bizarrely the Democrats who are trying to kind of be incrementalists, but they too have a left flank. And look, I'm going to say something about Steve Bannon. I mean. He was noisier about inflation earlier. I watched MSNBC and everyone else sort of buy the Biden administration line mm-hmm. that this is just mm-hmm. a blip. This ain't going to be nothing. This is nothing. And Bannon was, was skeptical and he was very dubious very early on. He was making noise about that laptop for 18 mm-hmm. months and only recently did the New York Times and Washington Post concede that it was real and there was a time when you couldn't even post about it on Facebook, right? Right. Um, he has a reason to be pissed at the mainstream media. He has yeah. reason to be pissed at people like me. I am really conscious of that. I mean, if he weren't so busy trafficking in lies, if he wanted to point out our excesses, I would welcome it. You know, it is not without merit to say that, like, the Democrats looking at all of the, you know, Black Lives Matter riots and sort of disregarding, you know, the looting may have been very problematic, right, for the Democratic Party. But there are things that he was focusing on where I think we were vulnerable. And he was right. What he is doing in response is so catastrophic. It's just so... A
0: hundred X bad. Well, that is right. And that's, of course, part of the problem when you start to see the world in this binary term is you close your eyes to where the other side might actually be right. So I'm sitting here in Wisconsin and last night I don't watch a lot of television at all. And I was watching, you know, some of the news broadcasts because I wanted to, you know, see the coverage of the committee and the political ads here are wall to wall. And they're, they're almost all Republican and they're all pounding away on law and order And the Kenosha riots right now, you know, for much of the legacy media, including MSNBC, where I'm a contributor, I should acknowledge that they look back on that as well, that didn't work for Republicans that, you know, that was let's let's move, move past that. Um, Well, uh, don't be so sure. Guys like Bannon understood that those scenes of burning storefronts were going to be great wedge issues, and they are just pounding and pounding away on all of that. And I'm not sure that a lot of the the folks on the coast understand what's happening here with with issues like that. But I have to concede what your point is that Bannon knows.
1: Well, that's just it. And I think that you can get suburban moms on your side with that and a couple other things if you're shrewd. He's not. I mean, he's got all the subtlety of, you know, a crocodile. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. we just don't know how much that matters. I think that Bannon was more, he was early to think about the pandemic like he was early on the the possibility that it it might have been a lab leak and that's because you know he hates china and that's like his you know relentless talking point so you know that might have been just an instance of a stop clock happening to be right. right but nonetheless i think democrats are vulnerable on this and i think that like legacy media is vulnerable on this and was vulnerable on this you can see how he could have appeal and why people might just despise us he did make me see that i will say he did
0: He did. Well, the story is American Rasputin. It is online and in the July-August issue of the Atlantic Magazine, Jennifer Senior. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time talking about somebody who is both loathsome and immensely consequential at the same time.
1: Thank you. That is. Can you imagine that as like a business card? Loathsome and immensely consequential. (laughs) That's good. Um, my ambition is to have so that on my
0: card someday.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just you. <laughs> you and me both. Baby, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, but this has been just an absolute delight and pleasure. You're just, you're the best. You're the bee's knees. Oh, you're, you're as good as they get.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Bulwark Podcast. Okay, so we talked about Bannon today. And next up, we're going to talk about old school Trump with one of America's most famous reporters who happens to be from his hometown. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.